Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 232 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Nicole Langton-Frost. She's an SLP with 12 years of experience in a variety of medical settings. She has spent the past eight years in the acute care setting. Four of those years were spent as the team coordinator for neuroscience and stroke therapy teams. She is currently the team leader for acute care PT, OT, and speech pathology. She is the director of the Johns Hopkins Hospital Advanced ICU Clinical Fellowship Program. She has completed presentations and conducted research related to speech language pathology with a focus on dysphagia. She achieved her board certification for swallowing and swallowing disorders in 2017. She has a passion for dysphagia management, as well as program and staff development. I brought Nicole on the podcast because she recently filmed a course for MedSLP education. That's MedSLPEd.com, and it is all things ICU for the SLP. So it's everything that she wished that she had known prior to starting to work in the ICU. It's an eight-hour course. It is 0.8. ASHA CEUs, and it's available as a recording now. It's on demand, so you can watch it as much as you would like, but please check that out if you're interested. It's a phenomenal course. Nicole is a phenomenal instructor, so that's at medslped.com. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Nicole. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation. I was so excited when you agreed to come on. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. So I'm Nicole Lincoln-Frost. I am an SLP. Um, I have about 12 years of experience in a variety of different settings. Um, But the last eight years, I've been only in acute care. 
Um, and now I am actually the team leader for acute care for PTOT and SLP. So I manage all of the, the disciplines. Um, and then I'm also the director of the advanced ICU SLP fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Amazing. I love it. All right. Um, yeah. So what, what, where should we dive in? What do you want to talk about today? Where should we start? Um, well, I guess the, the focus is on ICU. Um, and I think one of the big things is uh, maybe starting with multidisciplinary collaboration, because yeah. I feel like that's a such a big piece of, I feel like, what we do clinically in the ICU. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think from my perspective, the I learned so much from the multidisciplinary team, especially, you know, talking with PT and OT, with respiratory therapy, with the providers. Um, and really being able to take a step back and look at the patient as a whole and not just kind of get stuck in what is the, what am I seeing from a speech perspective? Yeah. Because from the ICU standpoint, the patients are so critically ill. There's so much that goes into our decision-making that I feel like I really can't make a, a good decision for the patient or a good recommendation for the patient without all of that input. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you said that too, because I think a lot of times we put so much pressure on ourselves to make the sole decision you know, what should I do for this patient? Where do we go? And I think so many times it's like, well, take a step back and talk to everybody else around you that's working with these, with these patients as well. Absolutely. Because so often I, you know, I sit and I talk to the, talk to the nurse and I'm like, Hey, how has this patient been doing? And they're telling me that, Oh, their vitals have gotten worse over the last 10 hours. So that may completely change my plan of what I'm planning to do or what I might recommend. Um, And then being able to talk to the providers and say, you know, Hey, I'm noticing this in the chart. What do you, what are you expecting over the next 48 hours? Are you expecting this patient to get better? Are you expecting this patient to get worse? Are we on any concerns? Are we on any watches of like, maybe the patient's potentially going to need intubation or is the patient going to need another surgery? So there's so much that goes into our decision-making that I speech really can't do it on our own. It really is such a team, a team approach. Yeah. Yeah. I love to hear that. So I know when I started in acute care, I was a little nervous to go talk to the providers if I had a question, because I felt like I had to have all the answers and I had to know all of the things. Um, And the more I practice, the more I realized that you're never going to know all of the things and you need to to be willing to ask and look and change. Um, So I found that one of the best ways for me to really start to build those relationships was to go talk to the provider or go talk to the nurse or go talk to the respiratory therapist and say, Hey, I'm seeing the patient, the patient seems to be presenting like this based on my medical knowledge. I'm not really understanding why they're presenting like that. I expected this. Yeah. And then being able to have that conversation helps to build that relationship because one, they know that you're thinking about it from the big picture and kind of speaking their language. But then also the next time you have a question or they have a question, you already kind of have that relationship in place. Um, so I found that that's super beneficial. Um, I had done that. Uh, with a few different providers, but um, one of them was a uh, a neurosurgeon who had some speech wasn't his favorite group. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he and in his defense, I, I can understand why what his perception was. He was concerned. He's like, "Well, you just say that they cough and you make them NPO." And I was like, "Oh, that's not a great view." So that like I was like, "All right, my goal is to build that relationship and fix that that perception." Um, and I started to talk to him about why I was recommending what I was recommending and not just they coughed at bedside, but because I read your operative note and I saw that you had manipulated the, the vagus and the glossopharyngeal nerve. And I saw that, I know you didn't sacrifice it, but it was stuck to it. So I suspect that that's what's causing these potential deficits. I'd like to do imaging to get a better idea. And that started to build that relationship. And then 
I asked, actually asked him to, uh, if I could observe in the OR with him. And I told him, I want to learn from like, your perspective, what you're doing. I want to have a better medical understanding of what's happening so I can better treat your patients. And that was, that like completely opened up the door. It was Amazing. the the entire surgery. I got like the most, I, some of the most beneficial education I think I've ever gotten um, on cranial nerves and what they're doing during these surgeries. Um, and from there, I feel like our relationship completely changed. And then there was that, that respect because we were having that conversation at the medical perspective and not talking just about patient symptoms of what we were seeing at bedside. Amazing. I love that perspective, Nicole. I think, yeah, I, I love that. So, for, and then from a treatment perspective in the ICU, I really, I would love to see us be able to provide more intervention, even starting in the ICU. Um, I mean, evaluation and assessment is of course so important um, and we need to get those instrumental studies done in the ICU. Um, but then I want to start, I, I like to try to say, take, start taking that next step. So thinking about, okay, now we know what the deficits are. Now, how do we help impair, uh, improve the impairments? How do we start treating these patients? And um, as, a, as I know, everyone knows, there's, there's not a ton of literature to support a lot of what we do in the ICU right now, especially from a swallow perspective. But there's a couple studies out there that that do suggest that it may be beneficial for us to start treatment in the ICU. There was a, I believe a prospective randomized control trial published last year, 2021, um, that looked at completing evaluations in the ICU and then providing treatment post-extubation. Um, now they didn't use instrumental assessment that was all off the bedside, but they did notice that the patients who got treatment starting in the ICU did return to a functional oral diet more quickly. And then I believe it was 2020 or 2006 that Dr. Carnaby did a randomized control trial looking at high intensity versus low intensity swallowing treatment in the acute care phase. Um, and they also found that the high intensity group had more patients that returned to a normal diet within uh, six months following the hospital, so following the acute stroke. So there's, there's not a ton of literature out there yet, but I, I think there is some things that help us to Help us to say that maybe it would be beneficial for us to start. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, Nicole, about your, you know, obviously you have vast experience in the ICU. And I think as someone that worked in the next level of care for so long, it's always so frustrating when our patients would come to us with either like not seeing speech or, you know, SLP only did this and didn't do any treatment or anything. And I think there's just a lot of preconceived notions. I think a lot of acute care SLPs are like, we don't have time, you know, they're out before we even, you know, get to see them. And then there's others that are like, there's, that's not really our role. Our role is to just sort of manage them, get them stable, then get them sent out. And I think there's so many different conflicting stories about what the role of the ICU SLP is. So I, I would love, cause I'm sure it's very nuanced. So I would love to explore that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of it falls onto staffing. Yeah. Um, so I think the the staffing ratios in acute care, the focus has not really been treatment. It's been exactly like what you said. It's been evaluation, diagnose, figure out what's going on, stabilize them and get them out the door. And that's still the case at the places that I've worked. But I, in the last few years, um, I've tried to make a shift where we, we try to prioritize some of those treatments. Um, so maybe we, you know, maybe we hold a Someone, a new evaluation who's on a diet and seems to be okay and doesn't have any big risk factors for a day. And we see that NPO patient for swallow treatment instead. So it's really just thinking about, you know, how do you triage and where do you want to focus the, the resources that you have? And then advocating for increased positions. 
Yeah. You know, I've, and I know that's challenging. That is not an easy task. Um, but in my experience, sometimes doing some of these, like picking a couple patients, really rehabbing them in the acute care setting and then demonstrating the benefit, I think helps to justify some of that. Yeah. Um, so I have a, I actually can think of a, a patient case if that's okay. I can talk through how yeah. we actually kind of demonstrated the benefit. Yeah, that'd be great. Fun. So this was an, an acute care patient who had a really complicated hospital course. Um, so they originally came in for, uh, live for treatment for liver cancer. And they had a, path, a complicated cardiac past medical history. Um, so they underwent this, the procedure and then they had a really complicated course, complicated by a bio leak, um, additional liver dysfunction, lower GI bleed, um, acute kidney injury requiring continuous dialysis, eventually ARDS, respiratory distress, um, with a prolonged intubation, and then were eventually trached. Patient also had delirium because it was a really complicated course. Um, and then once the, once the patient was trached and was stabilized, we saw her speaking valve and we eventually we, uh, got the patient to where they were decannulated and we had done a VFSS and recommended a diet. Um, but unfortunately, the patient then had complications. There was a concern for a potential aspiration event. The patient was then also diagnosed with tuberculosis, ended up reintubated and retraked. So now we're on month, I want to say month, I think it was month six of the hospital stay. Oh my goodness. Um, so really long length of stay. This patient was now, of course, acutely weak or like really significantly weak, was really, really medically impaired. And the the attending surgeon essentially came to the medical team or to the entire multidisciplinary team and was like, listen, we need a new approach. Like, I'm worried this patient is not going to make it out of the hospital. Like we need to do something. So we all sat down as a, a huge multidisciplinary team, um, including respiratory therapy, speech therapy, PT, OT, the provider. Um, we had uh, psychology involved. So we got really everybody that could potentially help us with this case got involved. And we talked about what would maybe help this patient and the the conversation of what if we tried intensive therapy? What if we tried essentially acute inpatient rehab level therapy with this patient? Would it make a difference? Um, and none of us really knew, but we figured, why not try it? The provider was like, you know what? I know he's critically ill, but I feel like we need to try something that's different. So we started doing intensive treatment. We saw this patient for PT, OT, and speech each an hour a day, six days a week. And we did, um, we focused on the one-way speaking valve. We also started working on swallowing. So we did a fees and his swallow was very impaired. He had severe error protection issues, severe swallow efficiency issues, which is not surprising after a six month hospital stay with that complicated of a course. But we really kind of took a step back and thought about, all right, let's try to implement the principles of motor learning and neuroplasticity. Let's have him swallowing. Let's have, I mean, and of course the, we had to be super cautious with that because the provider essentially said to us, if he aspirates even once, I'm not sure he'll survive it. So we started with saliva. Um, we brought our SE and G equipment in and we were utilizing that in acute care. We, and we started with 10 swallows the first session and that's all he could do. But we slowly worked, worked, uh, we tried to increase it every day and we had set goals that we hung on his wall. And we of course talked to him about, all right, you did 20 today. Let's shoot for 30 tomorrow and slowly worked his way up. And in, well, in 30 days, he was able to be, he was tolerating the speaking valve during waking hours and was advanced to a puree diet with thin liquids. And by month two, 60 days, he was decannulated on a regular diet and walked out of the hospital. Amazing. So that was a, a great kind of case study for us to demonstrate, like, even when they're so medically complex and 
there, there's so many things going on that sometimes that intensive therapy is what they need. Yeah. Um, and we need to take a step back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess my question is why, yeah, I mean, kudos obviously to that provider for wanting to just do a radically different approach, but I guess why waiting six months to even begin that? You know, I think, I feel like that's such a disservice to, obviously we don't know the whole story here, but why, why wouldn't therapy have been started sooner? I guess. Right. And I think since that case, I think, I know at least personally, we have like that, that was like the one that really switched my view. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, why are we not exactly? You said, why am I not, why are we not doing this for everyone? This is what we should be doing for every patient. As soon as the provider tells me that this patient is stable enough for me to start pushing, we should start doing it. Um, but I think that's, it's just such a different view than I think acute care has always had. And again, it goes, it, I think it goes back to resources. I think, you know, when you have two SLPs for the whole institution or the whole hospital, how do, how do you do that for everybody? You can't. So I think it's, it's slowly changing that culture and having these cases to then demonstrate when you bring to your administration, um, as now I am administration, like, you know, show me how, how, what the benefit is and how this benefits our patients and helps them move forward. And, but I, I, I think it's really hard. Um, I, I wish there was a better answer, but I, I don't know if there is. No, I, I love honesty is the best answer. Nicole, you know that. I think, you know, I, I love what you just said. And I was about to say, it just really needs a culture change. Like I just think of some of my closest friends are, you know, ICU SLPs and they just say, it's not our job to rehab them. Like that's what rehab is for. Our job is to just stabilize them and get them out the door. And I'm always like, but what, but what if, but what if you tried this or what if, <laughs> so, so it's interesting, you know, I would, obviously it's like we said, much, much, much more complicated than the two of us just sitting here trying to change the world. But I think you've, you've demonstrated that there is a potential for a lot more rehab to take place in the ICU if, if staffing allows. Absolutely. And, and not every patient is going to be appropriate for that. Um, you know, I mean, at the other side of that is, you know, in, in the ICU, sometimes our job is, is comfort and helping to get them to where they are so that we can help with goals of care conversations. So on the other end, sometimes I'm not looking at restorative. Sometimes I'm thinking about, all right, how do I get this inline speaking valve on this patient so they can have conversations with their providers about what they want? Or maybe we do the fees so that this is just another piece of the puzzle to know how, like, is swallowing an option or is this going to be a, a long recovery? Because that may change a patient's perspective of what they want. So that there is the other side to it, too. And not every patient is appropriate for us to do that intensive rehabilitation. And it's such a fine line of figuring out which, which patients do you go more of the compensatory comfort route and which ones do you really try to push that, that intensive rehabilitation as soon as you can. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Talk to me a little bit, Nicole, about sort of your, your journey into administration. Was it something that you always wanted to get it, get into? Did you think you would be the boss of a million OTs, PTs, and SLPs? No, <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, so I've had an interesting uh, career. I jumped around a little bit and then kind of found my niche. So I started my, my CFY in uh, inpatient rehab and outpatient. So I think that's sometimes where my rehab brain comes from when I'm in acute care is because that's where I started. Um, but I knew I eventually wanted acute care. So I did a few years in inpatient rehab and outpatient. And then I transitioned to a, a, a long-term care facility where I got a lot of that training mental experience. And then I started doing PRN and acute care. Um, and then I slowly transitioned into full-time acute care where I am now. 
And I was in this just full-time clinical, and that's where I thought I'd want to be. Um, and then the way we're designed, we have, we're organized by service. So I, uh, neuro is what I love the most. Um, so I was on the neuro service and we have kind of managers of each service. And then we have managers of the whole department. So the, my direct manager was stepping down and she had, she had made a comment like, oh, I think you'd be great at it. Like, oh, I don't know. I never thought about that. And of course, I got in my head and I was like, let me think about this and see if this is something I think I might want to do. And I took a step into that role and I got to see some of the benefits of being in a more leadership position where you got, you kind of had a seat at the table of the initiatives or things like program development type things. Like what can we do to improve patient care? What can we do to, to change our culture here? And then also some of the things of what does the hospital administration want to know? Like what matters to them? Because then and kind of being the liaison between the clinical staff and that and the administrators knowing, okay, they, they like, and I'm lucky, our administrators absolutely value patient care. So I'm very spoiled from that perspective. And I think that's one of the reasons I like being in an administrative position. But knowing that you know, hospital length of stay and readmissions and you know, complications are a big concern. So how do we demonstrate the benefit of our, of our intervention or increasing treatment or increasing the number of FLPs and how does that influence those longer term outcomes, the things that they care about. So being having a seat at the table was great. And then the more I did the program development type things, I realized the, how much I loved it and how much influence and change you can have in that position. Um, and I really like the teamwork there because it's you're, you have to collaborate with so many different providers and you have to collaborate with so many different members of the, the hospital team. And hearing their perceptions and their views changes my practice all the time. So things that I did four years ago, I don't do anymore. And I'm like, because I learned something new and I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Why have I been doing it this, this way? So I think it's having that view and that those interactions with people has continued to evolve my practice. And it's really nice to have the, the opportunity to, to have a seat at the table, especially as an SLP and say like, listen, I think that from a speech perspective, this is something that would be beneficial to the patients. I think it would improve patient outcomes, and I think it would reduce life stay. And of course, you can have data to back that up, but it's it's nice to even have the opportunity to bring those things up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that so much, Nicole. I think part of what I talk about a lot with you know helping helping SLPs set up fees businesses and and program development with fees and stuff is that you sort of have to figure out what language those administrators speak, and some solely focus on patient care some solely focus on the bottom line and it doesn't make them a crappy person. It's just, that's maybe uh, how they've been groomed to do the job. And, and does it, like I said, doesn't mean they don't care about the patients, but if you can't show your worth or you can't show your value or how you can contribute to the facility long-term, then you're really just sparking up the wrong tree. So I, I love that you've explored all of those and you're able to bring that information back to the SLPs because it really truly does matter. You know, as much as we want to say like, that's, you know, not our job, our job is to just help the patients, but we're really worth so much more than that. And I, and I think we need to do a better job of understanding those things so that we can show how much more worthy we are. Absolutely, because really so much of what we do does influence that. You know, there's uh, there's uh, the paper, I believe it's by Wilm Spotter, um, and it's going to forget the year. Um, it's recent, 2017, 18, somewhere around there. And they looked at readmissions with peg tube placements following uh, acute strokes. And they found that you know, patients that were having pegs placed early were more likely to get readmitted. 
So, you know, there's a role for us to play where if we can rehabilitate the swallow and the patient doesn't get a, a, a peg two place before they leave acute care, then maybe we can reduce readmissions. And then also those patients were, are more likely to end up in like long-term care or skilled nursing facilities. So maybe we can improve patient outcomes from that perspective. Yeah. So I think there's there's things like that and bringing that literature to the table is, is really helpful. Yeah, that's amazing. Talk to me a little bit, Nicole, because I know, you know, obviously you, you're so blessed in that you get to work in this big research institution. Do you work closely with the researchers there? Like, is that, are you guys like just this unicorn facility where you're like, oh, fresh research, let's put it into practice today. Like, I, I'm, I've always loved wanted to hear how that dynamic worked out. Yes, uh, we are definitely very, very close with our researchers. Dr. Brodsky is uh, probably gets very annoyed with me with the number of times that I text him and ask him questions. And I think he would say the same thing about you. So, <laughs> yeah. so I think, uh, you know, I, I do have to apologize to him on the amount of times that I reached out to him. I'm like, what do you think about this? I have this weird case. <laughs> so we definitely have a collaborative relationship. Um, but there are definitely barriers to, to getting research up and going. Um, and we still have the IRB process and we still have you know, research takes time. And acute care, acute care research is tough. Patients are unstable. They're constantly changing. They're, they, many of them can't consent. So it's, what is the patient able to at least acknowledge that they're interested and then can you get consent from family? Um, so there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. But we are, we are very lucky that when research does come out, we get to have those conversations. Um, if we have weird clinical cases, we can absolutely reach out. Um, and it is really collaborative because a lot of times we're involved in some of the, the patient care aspects of it. So if there's a research study going on where speech needs to be involved, where, you know, we're coordinating times to meet up to try to do some of those things. So it, it's a, it is a definitely a, a unique environment. And I think we're very blessed in that way that we have resources available to us that are an email or a phone call or a page away. Yeah. Yeah. How oh, cool. Um, so one of the other things that I really like about working in the ICU is going back to some of that collaboration, but especially I feel like I collaborate a lot with our disorders of consciousness patients. So patients who have disorders of consciousness from you know, a variety of different medical causes, so sometimes neurologic, sometimes metabolic, but I find that collaboration with our teams has really helped us to improve our evaluation and treatment with those patients. So when I first started treating patients with disorders of consciousness, I had very little experience with this. So this was something that I was not comfortable with, that I had so many questions about. Um, and I, I'm fortunate that we have an OT that works uh, that works with us who is very up-to-date on the literature and very really passionate about this population. So she was able to start doing some trainings for us and start getting us really comfortable treating these patients. And initially we started just kind of doing the evaluations, doing the coma recovery scale, the revised coma recovery scale once a week to track progress, but not necessarily doing intervention. And then as we started to dive into the research, and of course the research is still emerging, it's definitely an area that I think is starting to get more attention. Uh, We started to realize that maybe there was a role for us to try to do intervention when we see the patients and not just these kind of serial assessments. Um, And really working together as a PTOT SLP group and talking about, well, how can we collaborate together? And it's one of my favorite things to do now is to, to co-treat with one of my PT and OT colleagues, because sometimes in this patient population, when you elevate the head of the bed, they're still really not awake. They're really not alert. But as soon as the, the PT dependently sets them up in that vestibular shift, they wake right up and get 
whole eye opening. And then there's so many things that we can do from a speech and a solo perspective. Um, so it was really fun for us to start collaborating and find out what's the best way for us to start trying to intervene with these patients. And there's a little bit of research that's suggesting that it actually may be beneficial in the acute phase. Um, there was a study that came out that I, I believe it said that uh, patients had improved outcomes when the, uh, the stimulation was initiated within 10 weeks of the injury. Um, and then I think there was another one that was looking at, it was nursing-led and then family-led multiple stimulation sessions per day. I think it was five to six. And they did very personalized things. So like they have them tracking, but they have them tracking pictures or they had auditory stimulation, but it was the family's voices or if the family couldn't be there, recordings of the family's voices um, or like familiar scents that the that maybe the cologne or the perfume of the significant other um, to make it really personalized. And they found that the personalized frequent short stimulation, the patients had better functional outcomes. And that one was actually done in the ICU, which is really exciting. So we've tried to incorporate some of those things. And then now we're at a point where we're actually doing fees on some of these patients. Um, so even if they are, uh, you know, if they have a lower level of consciousness, if they're reflexively swallowing, then, and the, the team says that they're stable and they're okay with us, us trying, we will, we will do a fees with these patients. And you'd be surprised. Some of them can actually swallow. Some of them have a functional swallow. And then that's another way to provide stimulation because then there's the, the taste stimulation, there's the actual, that movement of swallowing, and there's that more natural response. Um, so we, we've definitely gotten a little bit more confident in our ability to, to talk to the team and be like, so we want to see if they can swallow. Yes. We're not crazy. We promise. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I remember earlier, like in my fees career, I had, I had a doctor that, that sent in a referral on one of these patients and I got there and I was like, are you like this guy? Like, are you totally sure? And he was like, yes, I promise. Like, you know, lower level of consciousness. And I knew nothing about this stuff at the time. Like, obviously I should have done more research at the time. Um, but I didn't, but I was shocked and I did this study and I couldn't like, I was like a beautiful swallow. And I was like, this makes no sense to me, but that doctor was so kind and spent so much time with me, like explaining more about disorders of consciousness to me and you know, how we can do that, do it. And oh my gosh, it, that totally changed my perspective too, because I think how many patients even that are fully awake, are we like, oh, they won't tolerate it, or there's no way they can swallow. And that totally shifted my perspective to, if that person has a reflexive swallow, we at least need to give this person a shot. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's, you know, it's not every patient and, and we can all, all, do all of them have a functional swallow? Absolutely not. But at least then you know what, what you can do in treatment. Like, can we, st- because we want them to start swallowing. We want to try to rehabilitate that as soon as possible. So maybe they're not ready to eat full meals, but what can we do to start using that as part of our treatment session? So it's, it's definitely changed my practice. And I, I feel it evolving every year as I learn more and I collaborate more with, with my colleagues who have a lot of experience with it, with these, uh, this patient diagnosis and patient population. Yeah. Cool. Oh, I love talking about that. Nicole. Cool. They're so fun. Yeah. And I feel like it's so rewarding when you see them start to emerge and they, they start, it's like those little things, like they track you around the room twice and it's so exciting. Yeah. It, you know, because you, they were doing, you know, you, there's so many times where you see them for two weeks and they're, you're not getting any response. You're not seeing any change. And it's just reminding yourself that the progress for these patients is much slower and that maybe we won't even see the progress in acute care, but it's, it's going to be beneficial down the road because they weren't just left with no stimulation for a month or however long they're there. 
So it's super exciting to see those like little signs of things, things changing and then improving. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So like I mentioned, my area of interest, um, of course, is all of acute care and ICU, but I narrow is like my happy place. Um, so there's a couple articles that I think come to mind that, that really changed my practice from a neuro perspective. Um, and the first one is a, actually an older study. It's from 2005 and it's called the food trial. And it is, it was a multi-center randomized control trial. And I even included something like 40 some odd hospitals in multiple different countries. And it was included all acute stroke patients that were admitted within seven days following acute stroke. And it did exclude subarachnoid hemorrhage patients. Um, but they actually took patients and anybody who had any type of dysphagia identified from a, I believe it was a bedside follow evaluation, they randomized them to an NG tube versus a pipe tube, regardless of dysphagia severity. So it didn't matter if they had severe dysphagia, couldn't manage their secretions, they got randomized and that patient may have ended up with an NG tube. And they looked at the outcomes at three months and they found that the patients who were randomized to PEG tube were more likely to be living in an institution were more likely to still be receiving tube feedings and had worse uh, quality of life per patient report. Um, and they also had a significantly higher death rate. So it, it made me realize that a PEG tube is really, I, I know in acute care, the push is to, to place the PEG before they leave and we're worried about length of stay. We can't keep them as long as we would like, but it's something really, we really need to think about risk versus benefit for some of these patients because it's that, 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 paper really showed me that sometimes the negative consequences of, of just the PEG tube alone can really impact this patient's quality of life down the road. And I think those are things that we need to think about. Um, so I know that's shifted um, my practice as well as some of the practice of some of the, the physicians that I work with, um, where we have really advocated for patients that we think are really on an upward trajectory that they leave with an NG tube instead of us placing the PEG. Um, and we've with lots of collaboration and lots of discussions with some of the inpatient rehab facilities and a lot of discussions with some of the neurologists, we've been able to make a shift where we're starting to send some patients with NG tubes instead of placing the pipe tube, which was a really exciting shift for me. And this was actually one of the ways that I started building relationships with some of our providers um, because one of our neurologists actually brought this paper to me and was like, hey, I found this paper. Have you heard, have you read this before? Like, what are your thoughts? And it really got us down a road of like, maybe we're not doing the best thing for our patients and how do we change this practice and what do we need to do to try to shift this because there's so many other hospital requirements and things that we also are held to and how do we find that balance. Right. Right. Oh, I love this. Nicole. I think oh, this is wonderful. Great. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, no, I just, I love the teamwork and the, and the collaborative, you know, the collaboration involved. I think so many SLPs just aspire to have these sort of high level conversations and, and these interdisciplinary collaborations. So I love listening to you actually put that into action. It, I think it's what makes me love my job every day. And I think why I have stayed here as long as I have is just the opportunity to do that because of course it, ben I mean, it, it absolutely benefits the patient, but also personally it benefits me. Um, I mean, I am learning constantly and it makes me a better clinician um, and it makes me a better administrator because I, I, I learn things. I'm like, Ooh, that, why are we doing that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We need to change that. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really great. And it's great for the providers because then they have a better understanding of what we do. And then there, it's more of a, a conversation, including the patient, the family, the provider. And it's not, 
oh, SLP needs to make this diet recommendation. It's what do we want to do as a, as a team? What does the patient want to do? What does the family want to do? What does the provider want to do? Because everybody has a different, everybody's coming from a different area and we really need all of the information to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said before too, about, you know, even you don't do things that you did four years ago. You know, I, I think it's crazy to think some things we've been doing for 10, 15 years, but then there's other things that we're so quick to change right away. And I just, you know, I don't want us to ever stop learning and growing and evolving. And, you know, it just seems like this field is so premature, really, in what we're capable of doing. So absolutely. And I think that's just medicine in general. I yeah, mean, always yeah, changing, so we're always learning. And I feel like you can't be static in in this field or in medical in general, because there's constantly new research, there's constantly things that you're like, ooh, I thought this, and now this is telling me I should stop doing that. And I mean, it's definitely, I look back sometimes, I'm like, ooh, gosh, I hope no one reads my note from 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's how we learn, and that's how we get better. Yeah, it's the truth. Yeah, so one of the reasons that I was so excited to have Nicole on this podcast today is she is going to be doing a full eight-hour course about all things ICU for MedSLP education coming up next month. So you can check that out at MedSLPEd.com. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about what you're going to talk about in the course, Nicole. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited. Uh, so I, it was really fun for me to put it together because it really made me think about what I use and what literature I use to make my decisions. So it really is organized in a way of going through the different ICUs and the different systems and thinking about what influences my recommendations from a swallow perspective, a communication perspective, a cognitive perspective, and then all the team members that I collaborate with in each of the different ICUs or the different diagnoses to help, again, make that that decision or that recommendation to the patient and family. And then, of course, having the conversation with the patient and family. Um, so it's really going to go through each of the ICUs, so the neuro ICU, the cardiac surgery and cardiac medicine ICU, oncology ICU. Um, so really going through each specialized ICU and really diving into some of the medical literature. So I, I definitely still talk about the speech literature, but I really dive into the literature on some of the decision making that comes from the providers. So, you know, what does the literature say about thrombectomy and what can that tell you based on their thrombectomy scores and the, the, the success, the, how successful the thrombectomy is, or how do they decide about you doing a thrombectomy and then how that may influence your decision-making um, or talking about things like ECMO and what is ECMO and how, how does that make the patient many, more medically complex and how do you make decisions based on that? And there's a lot of people that need to be involved in those conversations. So who do you talk to? Um, or talking about, you know, what are some of those vent settings? What are some of those number, like, what are some of those numbers on those, on the vent settings that ooh, they might not tolerate the one-way speaking valve? So what, like, let's talk to the provider. Let's talk to the respiratory therapist. Is, can we change the vent setting to improve some of the, some things so that they would be able to communicate? Or is this something that right now, this is, they're just too sick, but they're going to get better? Or is this their new baseline? Because if this is their new baseline, then maybe we can push a little bit more than we normally would. And then the second half is all case studies. So it's all patients that I've worked with over the course of my career, uh, where, and I try to do at least one or two cases for each of the ICUs with different diagnoses and really talk through the patient case and try to talk through my clinical decision-making of why I recommended what I recommended or why um, the conversations that I had with the providers to come up with some of these, these recommendations and decisions and then talk about the patient outcomes. Awesome. I'm so excited for it. <laughs> 
Thank you. I'm very excited. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited, Nicole. I think, you know, this is obviously a gap that I've just been wanting to fill in the field for so long is just like the solid foundational medical knowledge that SLPs just don't get, you know, but like we talked about too, it's constantly evolving. So even if you've gotten it 10 years ago, you've not gotten it in the last few years. So um, I'm so excited. I'm so grateful to you for putting this all together. And I know it's going to be an awesome course. So it will be recorded. So if anybody's interested, just check out metaslpia.com and you can, it's on demand, go at your own pace. So yeah, so awesome. Thank you, Nicole. Um, any final thoughts to the people, anything, if there's any SLPs that are, you know, I, I know you, um, you run the, help me out with it. What is it? The, oh, the advanced ICU, ICU fellowship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know everybody knows what it is, but I'm like, the words just totally escaped me. Yeah. So I guess if, if there's any younger clinicians, you know, aspiring to apply for that or aspiring to just work in the ICU, do you have any words of wisdom for them? Yeah. I mean, I think from just an SLP interested in working in the ICU, collaboration and reach out, build those relationships with, with the team. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You don't have to know all the answers. Um, so really reach out, ask questions, collaborate, because it's only going to benefit you, the, the provider, as well as the patient. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, and then I think just you know, doing all of the, the education that you can, doing all of the, the reading, doing all of the courses. And then if you can, just trying to get that, that exposure, or if you can't, just really working with providers or, or, or other SLPs or people that can, can kind of talk you through some of those clinical decision-making uh, pieces. And that, that is one of the reasons why we, we have the advanced fellowship is because sometimes it's hard until you're in, in that situation. So it is for people who, who are, have their C's um, and just want more acute care experience. Uh, and we really do focus on the ICU and we do a lot of focus on that, that medical, the medical knowledge as well as the C's knowledge, but really a focus on the medical knowledge. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. Any final thoughts for the people? No, I mean, acute care is, is very exciting um, and it's, you know, it's always changing. So just know that you're never going to have all the answers and every patient's going to be a little bit different and there's never going to be a, you always do this with this patient. So it's, it's always a little bit of a, a puzzle and it takes a lot of multidisciplinary things. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. Of course, thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.